Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology, the new series of Amplify Archaeology. Sorry we've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but we're back now and we've got some really good episodes coming up. And the one I am really excited to start with is with Dr. Rebecca Boyd. Rebecca's an archaeologist with a special interest in the archaeology of the Viking world. Her key research question when engaging with this archaeology is, what can these remains tell us about the lives and worlds of the people who left them behind? Rebecca's new book, Exploring Ireland's Viking Age Towns, Houses and Homes, uses the architectural evidence from Viking excavations of Dublin, Cork and Waterford to tell a whole new story about the beginnings of urbanism in Ireland. Rebecca, you're so welcome to join us. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks so much, Neil. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the Vikings are, are, are a particular interest of mine. I'm a bit of a, a what's the word, a flip? Flitted bejibbit, I think is the word. I don't know if I just invented a new one. But I tend to hop around between different periods a lot. But two that I always return to over and over again are the Neolithic and the Vikings. I find them both fascinating. But could you kind of briefly introduce the story of the Vikings and Ireland for us? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so the Viking story in Ireland starts in the year 795 AD when the um, when the annals record the first raid on the first Viking raid on the island of Rathlin. Um, and that's our first technical you know, note that the Vikings are here. The Vikings have arrived. Um, and this kind of this ushers in a period of about 30 or 40 years of raids, of hit and run raids. Um, and these are your stereotypical Vikings uh, without horned helmets, of course, but with helmets and swords and long ships raiding and attacking and pillaging um, and taking all our wonderful silver um, and bringing it back to Scandinavia. So that's kind of the first 50 years of the Viking Age, so the, the late 8th, um, early 9th century. And then we get in the year 840, 841, we get another little note in the historical records in the annals saying that the Vikings are still at Dublin. And this implies, this still is the key word here, and it implies that they've stayed over the winter we call this overwintering um, and basically somebody decided around this time that they are not going to go and sail back to Scandinavia for the winter. They've come to Ireland. What they had been doing was they had been raiding for the summer and then heading back home. But now in 840, 841, they decide, actually, let's not bother to sail back home because, you know what, we're grand here. We can have a nice winter here with the slightly better Irish weather. And so this is uh, what happens in 848, 41. And again, we have this, um, we have continuing raids after this, but the key change is the settlement at Dublin, um, which grows in size and scale from 840. We have the beginnings of political dynasties. We have mentions of the kings of Dublin. Um, Ivar the Boneless is one of the key ones there. And he's active, these, these guys are active in Ireland, in Dublin, but also all around the Irish Sea and in Britain as well. They raid Scotland in 870, 871. Um, they raid a big, a big fortress called Dumbarton Rock and they bring home 70, 70 ships of captives, um, of slaves. So the whole of the ninth century is all about these, these raids um, and kind of political alliances. Um, the archaeology of the ninth century is very much dominated by um, silver hordes and burials and the long forts. So it's very specific archaeology for this kind of this earlier Viking age. 
And the next thing that happens in the Viking Age, um, according to the historical sources, is that in 902, so after about 100 years, in 902, the Vikings are exiled from Dublin um, and they are there. They are pushed out of Dublin. They head off to England for about 15 years. Um, and traditionally, what we thought was that this means that Dublin is just abandoned at this point in time. There's nobody there um, because the Vikings have left. But what happened when the uh, when archaeologists excavated at a site called Temple Bar West is that they found that there is no um, no abandonment of settlement at this point. So people are still everyday normal people are still in Dublin in the beginning of the 10th century. And from that, so we know that the settlement is ongoing, that everyday life is ongoing, um, whereas the, the kings, the, the royalty, the nobility, the chieftains, whatever you want to call them yourselves, they may have gone for a period of time, but they come back to 917 and they come back to a functioning settlement, to a, to a place that still has people living there, still has people trading, making things. So very much everyday life is still going on. Um, in the early 10th century, um, the kind of the political alliances shift towards um, York and there's a, the kings of York in Dublin. And then towards the end of the 10th, 10th century, Dublin becomes more of, um, more of a target for political, for Irish political players. So it's, it's, it's become very wealthy, um, become very rich. Um, and, and you start to get kind of yes. more of an interplay, don't you, between the kind of the Irish... Between the Irish and, and the Viking, yes, yeah. Um, so what we see is we see the beginnings of what we call the Hiberno-Norse culture. So it's it's a mix of the material culture in the archaeology. So it's kind of bits of Irish motifs, bits of Viking things coming together to create this kind of new hybrid um, mix. And of course, then when we move into the 11th century, we have the beginnings of urbanization in Cork and Waterford. We have the very earliest evidence for the settlements there. Um, and then, of course, in 1014, there's the Battle of Clontarf, changing the political fortunes again of the leaders of Dublin. And Dublin is very much at this point, um, a, a, Dublin's very much part of the Irish political scene. It's not a player in the, the international Viking world at this point. It, it's ties. It doesn't really have ties with Scandinavia as much anymore. Um, so it's very much brought into the Irish world. Very interesting. And, and thank you. I mean, that's a huge run through <laughs> the Apache history with a lot of stuff happening. Yes. That's very interesting. I mean, as I say, they, they, there is something kind of compelling about them. What was it about the Vikings that drew you to it? I always think of Irish archaeology as being this really kind of broad church with so many different periods and sub-subjects and, and different kind of ways of looking at the past. Were you always interested in the Vikings and that's what kind of brought you into archaeology or did you kind of find your way to them through studying something else? Yeah, no, I always wanted to be an archaeologist from when I was little. Um, and I do actually think that it was the Viking connection. Um, so I remember 1988 and the Dublin Millennium um, and seeing the coverage on the TV of the, the big statue of Gulliver floating down the River Liffey and just the, the kind of the whole association of Dublin with the Vikings then. Yeah. Um, but I also I have a really vivid memory of going to visit, I think it must have been in the early 90s, the Viking Adventure Centre in Temple Bar. So this was, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but it was a kind of a arrival to Dublinia. Okay. They were both established around the same time in the early 90s. 
But I remember you went in, it was in one of the old churches in Temple Bar. You went in, you got into a lift um, and they kind of, they brought you down through the building into the basement where this Viking experience was. They sat you into a little longship and played music and, um, you know, you heard the noise of the birds and you sailed back across the sea and time into Viking Dublin. Um, and so I have this really vivid memory of going to visit that. That sounds great. <laughs> um, and also Dublin again, you know, school tours and all that. So the Vikings were very much always there. And I just I just found them fascinating. Um, but then on the very first day of working as an archaeologist, I went to work for um, Margaret Gowan and Company and I was working in Postex. So I was given a box of leather shoes and a toothbrush and told here, these shoes are from Temple Bar West. Um, go outside and sit outside and it was a beautiful sunny day and I remember sitting outside in the sunshine in the on the side of a street in Temple Bar holding this box of leather shoes of Viking age shoes and being told to clean them and thinking that really this is an incredible privilege um, and as part of that job you know I got to work on some of the the rest of the archive from Temple Bar West so looking at the plans of the houses the drawings of what these places looked like and looking at the handling the artifacts the things that actual vikings if you um that actual vikings had owned um so yeah so that's how i got into vikings i, I can see how yeah <laughs> do you know I, i've been incredibly lucky to work on some fantastic sites through through the years here in ireland i've never actually worked on a viking site um, yeah but, but my wife roshina often kind of teases me about that because she got to work on woodstown <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, you know, I've only kind of looked at them from afar, if you yeah. like, jealously. Yeah. So that's that's one of my big hopes is to actually get to work on uh, Viking Excavations. One, one, one day. One yeah. day. One day for sure. <laughs> um, I mean, like you, you're particularly interested, I suppose, in in things like architecture, the environment, yeah. and your podcast that is fantastic. If anyone hasn't listened to it, I really recommend it. It's called Viking Age Environments. Um, what was that aspect uh what what was it about the kind of the environmental and the kind of the the life if you like that yeah. kind of pulled you into that sort of sub-discipline of the Vikings rather than yeah. say the big history and, and all yeah that sort of thing. so to me archaeology is all about the daily life and everyday people and just kind of really trying to get to grips with the the experience of what life was like um and for me towns and urbanism are a huge, huge change in the environment. You go from lots of little, you know, lots of little ring forts and farms dotted all around the country to when our first town, Dublin in the ninth century, suddenly there's loads and loads of people living together and they are making a huge change on our environment. And it's a change that lasts till today. You know, Dublin is still there. And um, so it's this enduring change and towns are this enduring moment in our in our history and and in our environmental history where they irrevocably alter the landscape landscape um so i to me this happens this the the real seeds of this change are in the 9th and 10th century when dublin is founded and it, it expands in the 10th and the 11th and 12th century with cork and waterford and then it, it really mushrooms once the normans arrive but the those very first seeds of that urban change and the whole consequence changes in lifestyle and in environment and in the relationship with the hinterlands the changes in the way people support themselves in the way household economies work because people aren't aren't making their living by farming anymore it's not through agriculture it's through 
um, you know, the agriculture is removed, they are now relying on a middleman to give them the raw materials to make the things they need to buy the food to feed their children. So it's, it's this whole series of changes that happen in, in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. Um, so the podcast is really about trying to start to find new ways to look at how those changes are felt across the Viking world, whether that's in, in Greenland or, um, um, or here in Ireland or in Scandinavia. It's those looking at those moments of change um, throughout, through the period. No, it, it, it's such an interesting time. It really is. And like looking at that kind of environment and your interest in the kind of the everyday life aspect of it, if, if we walk together down the street in kind of one of the early um, phases of Viking Dublin, what would we have seen? What would we have kind of smelt or experienced yeah. as we're walking down the street? Okay, well, the first thing that I'd say here is, is do you know the difference between a road and a street? Uh, I assume I always assumed it was something to do with cars. <laughs> that might not be correct, is it? <laughs> well, according to um, the the UK Department for Roads and Transport, and um, the difference between a road and a street is that a road is, um, you know, is is a, a direction of travel. It's a provided hard surface that you can travel on, but a street has to have buildings on either side. And um, so you're you if you imagine you're walking along towards 9th, 10th century Dublin or 11th, 12th century Waterford, you're walking along this road and you're walking through the countryside and you see nice stands of forestry beside you, little copses of woodland, a farmer in the fields over there. But the real first difference that you notice when you get into the town is that suddenly you come to a point where there are buildings on both sides of the road. And now they may not be continuously on both sides of the road because you're just in the suburbs. So there'll be a building here and there'll be a building another couple of hundred metres down the road. But a street has buildings on either side. So it has people on either side. So you're coming into this really busy environment with lots of people, with lots of noise, with lots of animals wandering around you know you've got your cows coming being driven into the town to be slaughtered um you've got carts coming in and out with um cartloads of moss or building materials um if you're in dublin you can probably see the the stone quarries for building the walls in the 11th century um, and you can hear the noise of the quarry the ringing of the the hammers and the um on the stone and Towns are very definitely different from their surroundings. So you have this, this awareness that you're in somewhere that you haven't experienced before. There's a whole, there's, there's this whole suite of changes. Um, and then there's, of course, there's all sorts of different types of people around. So in the countryside, the vast majority of people, you know, are farmers. Um, but in the town, you've got people who make things, people who do things. You've got service people, people who, you know, who provide beer to travellers. You've got your sailors. Um, you've also, of course, very importantly, got your war bands wandering around. You know, you've got your big gangs of Viking warriors with their swords and their shields. And they would be, and they're mostly young men. So they are very visible in the environment because, um, because gangs of young men, big, we know that these are really big, strong people. It's very, very visible. Um, gangs of children wandering around, um, animals, chickens, birds nesting in the roof of the house and the thatch so it's 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 this really really busy place um and there's a couple of kind of 
more recent theories of urbanization and you know talking wondering about you know what it is about towns that makes towns different or how do towns start um and there's two two things that I'd, I'd mentioned here is one is the idea of social ties that in these environments when there's so many different people coming together you have lots and lots of different social ties and it's on a much greater scale than in the countryside just because of that density of people and um, so it's the it's the kind of the fertilization of lots of different things coming together and the other term that I came across recently which I think is really it's it's really nice to think about is the idea of energized crowding and again, you have all the people coming together and you know yourself, when we all started to come out of lockdown and start going back into, um, into shopping centres and into towns and starting to see people again, it's a very different energy when you're in the crowd, when there's so many people around. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so that's kind of, I think that explains a lot about how, how different towns are to their surrounding environments. Absolutely. And like what you know, in, in, in terms of some of the kind of the tactile elements of that, mm. what would a typical kind of street in it because I'm imagining for for kind of your roads out in the countryside and that in some places there might be kind of you know, they're not going to be the roads that we have today with gravel and everything like that. It's yeah. largely dirt tracks and such. Would that have, but I imagine in an urban environment that would get pretty mucky pretty quickly when you got pigs rooting around and cattle being <laughs> driven through and this, that and the other. Yeah. So what would a street have been kind of made of? Uh, well, that's the that's the tricky part because we haven't actually excavated a Viking street. Okay. Um, we have two two little snapshots, but generally we think that the Viking streets underlie the modern day street. So we'd have to dig up the, the current road surface and dig down, you know, several metres to get to the Viking street level. Um, and excavations, as you know, are primarily based around property boundaries. Um, and you know, we, we can't just go around digging up all the roads, uh, even though all the workmen seem to dig up the roads and lay cables all the time. <laughs> but we haven't actually excavated a full Viking age street. So there is a tiny little bit of a street surface which was excavated in Waterford um, under Peter Street in the 1980s and that was a metal surface so um, just a stone surface um, made of very small cobbles. There's also <coughs> excuse me another road excavated by Claire Walsh um, about 10 years ago in the Coombe and it's a it's slightly earlier so it's it's probably 8th and 9th century but this is very much a road rather than a street because we're in the Coombe so we're outside the medieval city of Dublin. Um, and it is about three or four, three to four meters wide. So it's very wide. It's wide enough to drive cows along, whereas the streets would have been a little narrower. Um, and again, it's um, a cobbled surface and layers of beaten earth, um, but it has ditches on either side of it. So ditches going down to kind of to really define the layout of the road. Yeah, very good. And, yeah. and like this might be kind of a, a sort of a technical question. I apologise. <laughs> no yeah. Do you know the way like say Dublin City Council are responsible for keeping the streets and thoroughfares yeah. operational today? Did Viking Dublin, was it the king of Dublin who kind of had underlings that ran around doing that kind of stuff? Or did people just kind of look after what was immediately in front of their property? Or, or was yeah. So I think in the 9th and 10th century, there's probably some level of communal responsibility. 
um, people kind of looked after their own little patch. Um, I, we have nothing to suggest that there is organized waste collection um, at that point in time. Certainly by the end of the 10th century, though, there is, you know, there is this level of civic administration that we can see in the documentary sources. And they talk about um, in nine, I think it's in 980, they talk about levying a tax on every yard in Dublin. Um, so there is by that point, there is this kind of there's, there's awareness that there are these individual um, th that there are individual properties which can be, you know, which essentially you can make money from, you know, you can tax them. Um, so there is that that level of administration by that point. But before that, it's I don't know. We don't know. Um, and you have to think as well of the scale of the population and how much waste they would actually produce um, and how that would be dealt with. Well, that's it. And of course, you know, I suppose, um, I, and this is a bit of a tangent, again, I apologize. <laughs> but again, with this, the way that the society was structured with so many slaves coming and going and such, mm -hmm. you imagine that there was sort of a workforce that was kind of put to use for, for those kind of tasks and, and, and such. But uh, yeah, no, it's interesting. You just kind of think about people moving through a town. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. your mind starts thinking about the problems that you see in the town today. Yeah, probably yeah. existed, you know, a thousand years ago too. Yeah. Um, looking at the homes and the houses and the kind of the structures, um, if you take kind of a, a, a sort of a typical home in yeah. Dublin, uh, you know, what would it have been kind of made of? How sort of big were these buildings? How many people do you think lived in them? And was there any kind of privacy, like in all the homes today, I know open plan is kind of in fashion and has been for a while, but in a lot of homes, you know, you'd have separate bedrooms and, and this, that and the other. What, how would that have compared with Viking, a Viking house? Okay, so to, to follow on from the kind of the material of the street, um, the materials of the houses are wooden. They're all organic materials. Um, and... This is a big difference between our, our Viking towns and our later towns um, because there isn't stone building. You know, so the, the microclimate of the town is entirely organic. So the houses are built of post and wattle, um, uh, hazel and willow, um, some oak being used for house building, though not very much. Um, the roof was thatch, um, probably of straw or maybe of reeds. And then the floors within the house are, um, they're usually beaten earth. Occasionally you get timber pavements, little stretches of, you know, very nicely carpentered timber pavements or stretches, little stretches of cobbles, cobblestones or flagstones inside. But they're all very, very organic places. And with that, of course, goes along with the, um, the decay of organic materials and kind of the, the constant need for repairs of these buildings. Um, and, you know, just the, the general smell of, you know, rotting wood all over the place and the piles of building material in the backyard and um, everything that goes along with that. Um, but the houses themselves, they're not terribly big, actually. They're, they average about 40 square metres, um, which to kind of give you a comparison, the um, is the minimum size for a studio apartment, according to Dublin City Council's um, building regulations. So they're really not very big spaces at all. Um, and within that, you have probably something that's fairly recognizable to us as a nuclear family. And um, so you have your parents and some children. You might have had um, a granny or an unmarried aunt or 
um, and um, someone like that living with you. So pretty much a recognizable nuclear family, as we know. And there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of evidence for greatly extended families or for multi-generational living. Um, not least because just because of the size of the buildings, they're really not very big. Um, so if you think about um, if we all go back to lockdown for a minute and think about everybody under the same roof um, for weeks and months on end, um, you just can't fit very many people into these buildings. Um, so they're generally rectangular houses um, and they, they have three aisles within them. The doorways are in the two short end walls. Um, and there's a fireplace in the middle of the house. And then on either side of the fireplace, you have your um, kind of bench areas where people sat and did things. Um, and then out in the yard, each house is set within a little individual property yard. Um, and then out in the yard, you can occasionally have other buildings, smaller houses, um, sometimes with a fireplace, which indicates that they were domestic buildings, that people were living there and were doing things in them. So they needed a heat source to keep themselves warm. Um, or you have little storage huts for keeping your shovels and your buckets in or a little pigsty um, or a chicken coop. Um, and all these different buildings are they're kind of dotted around the yard. And what joins them all is a series of pathways. These are, these are all wooden as well, little wooden pathways leading from one building to the next, leading around the yard from one end to the other. The yards can be quite long. The yards, um, so the houses are about six, seven metres long um, to give you that area of 40 square metres. But the yards could be um, 20, 25, 30 metres long. It's quite big space available outside the house. And when you think to the size of the building, the size of the built space, people have to have been working outside just as much as they were inside. Um, and this kind of it brings the, 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 um, the, the quote to mind that there's no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad clothing. Um, so people were outside doing things outside far more than we do. You know, our, our lives are very much inside the house. Um, so there's a whole range of activities and things happening on, happening in the yards behind the houses and also in the areas between the front of the house and the street. So the, you have your street going down and then the house is set back a little distance from the street. Could be just a metre or two, but it could be as much as eight or ten metres in some of the, the more extreme examples. So there's a whole space there where people are doing things in front of the house, but they're all visible from the street. So the passers-by can see what you're doing outside the house. Um, and depending then, of course, if your door is open or closed, they can see into your house and see what you're doing there, or even see all the way through house if the visibility is right. Um, so very different, um, very different levels of privacy and understandings of privacy and need for privacy than, than we have in our modern lives. So there's a big range of activities kind of, you know, so with the house itself uh, being that kind of smaller space, would that be largely just for sleeping and eating and, or would there kind of be different activities within the building itself? Or are we talking about kind of, we have to see it as an entire plot? Um, I think we have to see it as an entire plot, but within the houses themselves, there are lots of different things going on. Um, 
all the cooking seems to have happened in the house around that central fireplace. There's no real, there's no very strong evidence for any cooking happening. You know, there's no barbecues in the garden or anything like that. There's nobody roasting a pig on a spit in a pit in the yard. We just don't have any evidence for that. And that's something that's true all over the Viking world. Cooking happens within the main house. Um, there is definitely evidence for lots of craft work inside the houses. Uh, people are making things because we have all the debris recorded um, in different parts of the house. Um, and, you know, people are sleeping, people are eating there, people are making things, whether that's food or things to sell. Um, but what is going on, what happens all the time is um, kind of the, all the teaching and learning that we need to do in order to perpetuate our, our existence, our family's existence. And this is a, a realm of activities that's kind of, that's called maintenance activities. Um, and these are the things that we need to do to get the next generation of our family going. So it's things like teaching kids what to do, having kids, caring for kids, caring for the elderly members of the family, for the disabled, for the infirm, um, doing things like all the cooking and cleaning that needs to be done, um, making sure that um, somebody knows that the cesspit in the backyard is full, so it needs to be covered over and somebody needs to dig a new one. All the little kind of everyday bits of life that we don't necessarily think about very often in the archaeological record, but that are all very necessary activities in order to maintain your existence. Um, and all these different activities are what's happening in the house. So it's not just sleeping and eating. It's everything that you need to do to keep your family going, to keep your household going and to keep it going until the next generation. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I suppose, you know, thankfully through lockdown, you know, there's things like Netflix and, yep. you know, and, and outside of that, there's schools and such. There's none of that in the Viking Age. Nope. Um, so the children would be learning through... Through observation. Yeah. yeah, through observation, yeah. Through, through being with, you know, I suppose the female children being with the women of the household and, and yeah. likewise for the male. Yeah. One of the artefacts I always find very touching, because I think the story of childhood in, in any era is an interesting story, and one of the artefacts I always kind of find sort of touching in a way in the National Museum are those little Viking toy boats yeah. and things, do you know? Yeah. It just puts such a picture of everyday life, doesn't it? Yeah, they're beautiful little objects. Yeah, the, so they are. the gorgeous. Looking at the kind of, you know, one of the kind of common things that we see in every period, of, of course, as well, is, is a sort of stratified society. There's people at the top and there's people at the bottom. So we've talked there, I imagine, about, you know, a, a pretty middle class for today's kind of, <laughs> you know, description, a pretty standard, well-to-do enough Viking household. What? How would that have differed if you were at either pole? So if you were an elite Viking household in Dublin, if you were one of the kind of um, very top of, of society there, do we know much about what, how their life differed from that? And and likewise, if you were at the bottom, if you were a slave or if you were kind of perhaps the next step up from being a slave, do we know what their life and living conditions were like? Yeah, um, and I think to, to be very facile about it, it boils down to stuff to how much stuff you have. Um, 
the very wealthy houses um, physically look much the same as the less wealthy houses. So everyone lives in the same type of building. They're these post and wattle rectangular houses. Um, so there's very little differentiation in terms of the type of house there. But what is different is what's inside the house. And the wealthiest houses are the houses like uh, FS88 or FS90 from Fishamble Street, which are the ones that are always pictured in the books about Viking Ireland. And they have the lovely wooden pavements leading into the house and they have really well-defined fireplaces and lots and lots of different internal areas. Um, so they have more differentiation of space. It's more, more areas of privacy and um, potentially as much as little small rooms inside the house. Um, and again, this is something that we see in 11th and 12th century houses in Iceland, that the richer houses have more internal partitions. So they are trying very hard to divide up their space in the wealthier, richer, higher status houses. Um, whereas in contrast, the less wealthy houses are, they're very basic. They are, they're the, they have the same floor plan and they can be much the same size, but they have very little inside them very little, um, you know, they don't tend to have huge amounts of, of pavement or internal spatial differentiation. So um, that means, you know, they don't have the little internal rooms within them. Um, they also don't have many finds. There's just not much stuff to be found in them because people, you know, when you, um, if you have less, you take care of your stuff um, and you don't have the same opportunities to acquire materials, objects. Um, and the other difference that um, Lindsay Simpson suggested in Temple Bar was that perhaps the, the, um, the less well-off houses can be differentiated by the amount of repair work that's ongoing. So these houses, as I've said, they're, they're organic, they decay, they last a lifetime, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. Um, and they need to be constantly repaired and elements of them replaced. So if you have a house with a high degree of repair, um, lots of different internal posts being replaced and lots of different layers of fireplace being built and rebuilt. Perhaps that means that that family were less well off and less able to afford to build their new house. Um, they had to just keep putting off and repairing it as long as possible. Um, so, that's, yeah. that's very interesting. And I suppose at, at the, the very bottom of society, uh, and it's something that, you know, slavery existed before the Vikings in Ireland. Uh, the, uh, you could argue that the Vikings sort of, it's industrialised the wrong word for it, but they certainly, it, it certainly peaks with the Vikings. Yeah. Um, would, would slaves, would every, pretty much every middle-class household have slaves and would they be kind of living under the same roof or some of those structures that you spoke about outside? Would they, do you think, do we know much about how they lived? We know virtually nothing about how slaves lived um, and we know virtually nothing about their prevalence within the towns. Um, there's a suggestion that it's been suggested that some of those smaller buildings in the yards um, could have been for keeping slaves, for holding slaves um, or for, you know, for putting up your most uh, kind of, I'll say less serve, less slave, more a servant kind of figure. Um, but we have absolutely nothing to justify or deny that. So we, we really don't know. Um, my 
entirely um, speculative uh, take on it is that we have something different going on in these early urban places um, because the type of work that people are doing um, is on a very small scale. So the, the level of making things is quite small scale. It's, it's enough to trade. It's enough to produce things to send outside Ireland to partake in the international kind of Viking economy. You know, you can make enough ring pins to send off or enough bowls to um, enough wooden bowls to kind of to supply your household, to supply your neighbours. But the scale of it in the early years is not we don't know. Um, and by the time we're getting into the kind of the 12th, the later the 12th and 13th century, these are crafts that are virtually going to become guild secrets and they're going to be associated very much with um, with the economic benefit and the the association with the guild um, in the medieval period. So these are not necessarily crafts that you would want to teach to just anyone. Um, And this is my entirely speculative take um, on it. So I think we need to do a lot more work on looking at how slavery is practiced in urban places and how that can translate to our scale of urban place in Ireland. I just find it an interesting subject because, yeah. you know, I mean, I think, like, perhaps in some ways, I have more of a picture of life as a slave in Rome, let's mm. say, where there's, there's huge numbers out working in the fields and collecting the raw materials to bring into the city. Yeah. yeah. I, I always wondered, was that something similar to, to like, in Dublin or something like that, that you have mainly the, the slave population is for use in the kind of the hinterland. Yeah, perhaps that, that might be a better way to look at it because there has to be, as you say, there has to be somebody out there collecting the raw materials. Um, and I don't know, you could think of your, your wealthy Viking householder in Fishamble Street um, having a second estate outside the town where the slaves are and where the, you know, where the overseers are, to use that, the Roman equivalent. Um, but we really just don't know and likewise, we really don't know how they how the, the whole slave trade was handled in Dublin. We have no no evidence at all. Um, I think one well, it, it all depends on the, the preservation conditions on a site, um, what evidence is preserved under the ground and what isn't. I mean, if we were to find a site with great big enclosures within or very close to the medieval or the Viking city, um, perhaps then maybe we should think about doing something like isotope analysis or some sort of environmental work to see if there are increased signatures for um, waste um, to see if they were used for for corralling people, for corralling slaves. or animals either way um for sure and actually you know looking at evidence like that and, and you know i, I suppose you, you touched on the cesspits and, and so on before <laughs> um what are, can we, we talk a little bit about the kind of evidence that we have in in general because we i suppose when we get to the vikings you know we we've got a few different strands to pull from including historical as well uh could you give us a little kind of I suppose, a bit of a background almost to our understanding of the Vikings that we have today. Um, so 
in terms of the the environmental evidence um yeah so what we have is um in Viking Dublin and in, in most urban places, we have lots of cesspits and cesspits are your waste pits. Um, they are generally a bit wet um, and they have really good organic preservation um, of everything that goes into them. So they're they're basically, they're like little treasure troves for us, for archeologists. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's maybe not the most pleasant thing to talk about, but it, it always gets people talking. Um, and, you know, one of the facts that kids always love about the Vikings is that we know that they use moss as toilet paper because we found layers and layers of moss in these cesspits um, sandwiched in between the layers of, of human excrement. Um, they're uh, very fragrant places, I've been told. I've uh, uh, fortunately never excavated a cesspit. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Yes. The, terms, the term sandwich, though, it sounds like... Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it is kind of funny because, like, do you know, I think one of the... When I think of Viking York one of the objects is that's the right word that comes to mind is that absolutely giant poo which is like that must have been a big guy (laughs) but you're right because it can tell us a lot can it about diet it can yeah so basically everything that you eat goes into you and goes out you um and goes into these cesspits so they're huge um so they're they're treasure troves for diet to tell us about what people ate um, and then if you're thinking that this the person here ate raspberries and brambles, that tells you that there have to have been raspberries and brambles growing somewhere within a reasonable distance. And um, so it tells you about the kind of the quality of the land around the cesspit. So maybe the plot next door was vacant and overgrown. Um, or alternatively, um, there was somebody who was gathering um, brambles and raspberries, blackberries out in the countryside in the autumn. Um, and bringing them back into town to eat them or maybe the person had been had gone out gone out for a picnic in the woods and had some blackberries on the way home you know and it gives you this kind of you can go from this micro micro scale of perhaps you know one person on a picnic in the woods to the idea of a vacant property next door which had been a, a left fallow or abandoned for long enough for brambles to grow there so you know the periods of, of weeks seasons years um, going through the time. And I suppose like one of the big sources of archaeological information we have for this period, of course, is, is uh, Wood Key, which is one of the kind of the most, I suppose it's one of the biggest kind of landmarks stories in, in Irish archaeology, both from the kind of the richness of the evidence that it provided and also the scale of the loss that, the, the, you know, we didn't get to excavate all the site. Um, how has kind of the Viking studies in Ireland changed since Wood Key and, yeah. and how how was it kind of developed? Yeah so Wood Key was a really pivotal moment um, and kind of before Wood Key Vikings had always been seen as kind of as something exciting and foreign and other really uh, because the finds that we had before Wood Key were all antiquarian finds of silver hordes or Viking warrior burials um, so they're these really, they're really spectacular finds, you know, with swords and big piles of silver. And they're very attention grabbing and they're very obviously different. And they, they stand out very obviously to, um, to the antiquarian's eye as being you know, not Irish and still to our eye as being really spectacular finds. But what Wood Key did was it really redefined our understanding of these, of the Vikings as 
an integral part of our story as not being other or foreign, but as being part of Ireland and part of the narrative here um, and part of the story of everyday life that applied, that, that affected everyone. You know, that um, was not just, so it was not just this, this kind of this foreign um, Viking, these, these foreign Viking war, war bands who came in, raided and left, you know, they were here, they were an integral part of our society. Um, and what Woodkey did as well was it really, um, really brought forward the, the potential and the strength of archaeology and the archaeological record to contribute to this story. Um, and I suppose one of the biggest developments as a result of Woodkey was the appointment of city archaeologists, um, first in Dublin um, and we have city archaeologists elsewhere now. Um, but it really redefined the role of archaeology within the planning process um, and the, that role of Dublin city archaeology is, is uh, Dublin city archaeologist is really valuable and we've been lucky that it's always been occupied by a Viking scholar um, and that has had a huge impact on how our heritage and our heritage landscape within the city has been preserved and explored since then. Um, hand in hand with that is the um, the strength of experience and the depth of experience of all the excavators who have worked on these really, really incredibly complex sites since the 1970s, all the way through the 1980s, 90s, right up to today. And that's a huge depth of experience that we're very lucky to have. Um, and again, I the only reason that I can sit here and talk about these is because of all that incredible archaeological work, the incredible record that they that we are left with after every excavation, because excavation is, of course, a destructive process by taking the archaeology out of the ground, you're removing it from its context, and we have to record everything, we have to um, draw plans of the site, we have to write detailed description of what every single context looked like every find where it came from and we can do that in a much more digital format these days with GPS 3D recording but it is what we have as a result of Woodkey is an incredibly strong record of our Viking archaeology not only in Dublin but also in Waterford and Cork um, and I think the potential of that record is something that we really need to shine a light on now in future research. Um, by exploring the scale of it, the amount of excavation that has gone on is incredible. Um, and the amount of data we have is just mind boggling. I mean, it's so much that it's hard to get a, uh, to get a handle on, yes. but there is so much potential. No, absolutely. And, and as you say, like it's so right, you said, you know, um, Rich Johnson, who's, who's the city archaeologist, uh, it, it's fantastic to have somebody in that role kind of overseeing because with something like Dublin, it's different to a site being discovered on a road scheme where you're getting kind of a more everything's kind of being found at the same time along a linear route with Dublin you've got different developments happening at different times different plots years apart so it does need somebody to kind of have that overview I, I suppose mm -hmm. and, and I think do you know one of the, one of the other aspects about Woodkey and, and and certainly everything that in terms of evidence and our understanding of the past is so important, but I also kind of feel like it kind of galvanised the public a little, didn't it? And as you say, it kind of connected the story of the Vikings to Dublin, 
mm-hmm. and Dubliners, and there was a huge public upsurge, wasn't there, of interest and value in that site, which I think, you know, is still there today to some degree, which yeah. I, I think is really valuable as well, you know. Um, and how kind of, looking kind of today and, and outside of, of, of Dublin a little, I mean, how does our understanding of the Vikings um, and the way that we approach it, how does it compare kind of internationally? Because, of course, one of the interesting things about the Vikings is they're not just here in Ireland, they, they are an international <laughs> phenomenon, so to speak. So uh, different countries are kind of looking at them in different sorts of ways. And how does Ireland compare with that? So the Vikings, because they are global, they are across Europe towards North America, and they have this enduring appeal to everyone. Um, So there's a huge amount of work going on in Viking studies elsewhere, Um, obviously in Scandinavia, um, and obviously in Scandinavia because the Vikings are everywhere. There's a huge number of researchers working on Viking archaeology, and that's something that we were struggling with a little bit here. We don't have many people many academics working on Viking archaeology. So, you know, when you get a a critical mass of people together, the ideas start flowing when you start talking about it and comparing like with like or not like with not like. Um, And because there aren't a huge number of Viking archaeologists active in Ireland, um, we're really, we need, we need some new ideas and new kind of new research agendas, new research projects to kind of to get things going again, because as I say, our scale of evidence is just mind blowing. Um, And what I see in the big international projects at the moment is for for a start that they are all international and they're multi partners, there's museums, there's universities, there's cultural heritage institutes, and everyone is working together. So I think our our next round of projects has to be really collaborative. And that's again, that's where you get loads of new results, because everyone's talking to each other. Something actually that's really interesting is that um, a lot of, uh, well, a number of projects are actually funded by major uh, drinks companies. Ultimately, um, in Scotland, there's the uh, Glenmorangie research project in Glenmorangie whiskey, um, and they've been uh, looking in collaboration with the National Museum of Scotland at the Galloway Hoard um, and doing some really nice work looking again at looking at a hoard, an individual object, an individual find, but using a really detailed, in-depth analysis of that one object to tell this much wider story about making and trading and connections in the Viking world from Scotland outwards. Um, The other big project for urban archaeology is the uh, Reba project, which was based in the Centre for Urban Evolutions at the University of Aarhus, which is ultimately funded by the Carlsberg Foundation. Um, So, yeah, so maybe we could talk to Guinness um, and try and get something going there. (laughs) Absolutely. um, I was just thinking the Azure want to pull the finger out of it. (laughs) You know, we've got such opportunities. They're perfect location. Um, but what they did in Reba was um, they had a small site in the middle of Reba, which is one of Denmark's earliest towns, and they excavated a very small site there um, about probably about eight or nine years ago now. But they did an incredibly, again, really in-depth exploration of this site, and they pioneered all sorts of new um, excavation strategies, including um, 3D modelling of contexts um, 
and high resolution scanning of the whole site. And because again, because it was a very small contained site, they were able to get some really interesting results from that and some really good insights on new excavation techniques. So I think it, because all because all our Viking archaeology in Ireland is ultimately going to be excavated by commercial archaeologists. I think there's there's some lessons we could take from that to make that process of urban excavation and um, to make it a little stronger, to improve our techniques. And um, there's lots of, I think there's lots of potential there. Um, but really, I think for future research, the, the sky is the limit. We could do whatever we want. Um, we traditionally, we've done a lot of artifact studies, very small scale artifact studies, looking at different types of swords or combs, um, mostly based on the Fishamble Street, the wood key finds, because it's such a wonderful collection. Um, but maybe we need a, a bigger scale project, you know, looking at, at, the, at all the manufacturing or all the trading um, in Dublin or across Dublin, Cork and Waterford, um, looking at the national picture um, and comparing that internationally. Um, or what, what I'd really love to see happen is a very different sort of project moving away maybe from the artifacts or even from the house as the artifact to look at the social world. Um, a lot of the research that we see in early medieval Ireland is generally, and I'm going to make some very broad brush statements here, is generally about kings or religious powers. And they're two very specific minority aspects of the medieval world. Um, and they are also, they tend to be very male dominated research agendas, um, looking at the big political players, you know, the, the big, um, the kind of the big figures who get recorded in history. Um, you know, someone who was powerful enough to have a, a church named after him or to have his own castle. Um, and I think that there's a whole world of other research potential because there's a whole rest of the world out there. And I think that we do need some new perspectives on that, um, on making, on doing, on being um, within, within the Viking world and, and without the Viking world across the whole of um, the, the whole spectrum, that there are all sorts of different perspectives that we just really haven't started to explore yet. No, absolutely. There's so many really interesting opportunities and um, I must talk to you about one off later <laughs> as well. There's quite an interesting one we have on the go at the moment as well. Um, but look, you know, we, we talked a bit there about excavation and I think one of the things I've been really impressed with uh, over the last kind of 10 years in particular, but it's been going on a lot longer than that, is the new opportunities for research, uh, the looking at archival material. And, and you, you've mentioned the importance of the Wood Key assemblage and, and the Fishamble Street assemblage. Um, you know, I, I've seen, I had a, a great chat there about uh, looking at archival material that was excavated at Carrow Keel in 1911 yeah. and the value of the information that's come out of that. Are, are there similar kind of opportunities, I suppose, with our assemblages here in terms of looking at, as you say, we, we kind of looked at artefact studies and such, but outside of the artefacts, are there anything else that we can kind of, any other questions that we could maybe ask of our archives? Yeah, again, the sky's the limit. Um, 
it's a it's there's a huge archive um of what I'd love to see um is some really targeted um environmental work um maybe some really targeted uh, bone analysis looking at what sort of animal bones are found um, change over time quantities and then of course that can go on into much newer work like DNA analysis isotope analysis where do the animals come from what what's you know can we identify just different species preferences um, you know there's, and, and again I'll put a disclaimer here I'm not an environmental archaeologist um, this would have to be done by uh, somebody who is um, but yeah, environmental work would be a huge potential. Um, I suppose as well, like I said, archaeology is a destructive process. Um, and the archive that we have from that regard is really valuable because the, the archive itself um, is in a constant state of decay. Um, and, you know, the wood key samples were all excavated, what, 40, 50, 40 years ago? Is my maths right? Um, and they've been in storage for 40 years. So there's real potential there to see, to do assessments of what, you know, what, what do samples look like after 40 years of storage? How usable are they? Um, projects like that. There's the, um, is it the, the project time? Um, there's a Neil Carlin in UCD is involved in it. Um, anyway, looking at, again, looking at archive samples for radiocarbon dating in the Bronze Age. Um, but I think we could do something, something very valuable with the wood key material, with the medieval Dublin material, um, to look at that. Um, because archaeology is a, a finite resource, we are going to run out of archaeology to excavate. And we have, it's, it's part of our duty as archaeologists, it's part of our duty of care to get the best value out of the archaeology that we have already excavated so that we can leave archaeology in the ground in situ for future generations, for future techniques, for future knowledge to benefit from. And um, so we really have to be very judicious in how we analyze what we already have um, and look at best practice and best potential. Um, because we can't just store material forever because it will decay um, through through nobody's fault because it's it's organic material organics decay um, so we have to we have to be very conscious of that and our, our duty of care towards that material yeah no, that's that's so true and i i suppose like you know looking kind of stepping out of the the archaeological aspects of it in a in a way and, and looking at perceptions of the mm. past uh, you know and when you think about the kind of the vikings that definitely right now this isn't the best expression for it but they're definitely like probably if not the biggest one of the biggest brands for want of a better word in history you know the there are so many films including the northmen which i haven't actually seen just yet that's the brand new one um but there's so many movies there's big tv shows uh, on the vikings you know you even see them kind of incorporated into advertising all the time and branding and and, and so on what is it do you think that has captured the public's imagination about the Vikings more than any other kind of period, really. I mean, the only things close to them are things like the Romans and the Egyptians and, and, and so on. When you think about the Vikings, they're just so prevalent today. 
They are. Um, I think, first of all, they're not that far removed from us in time. You know, it's only a thousand years ago, which doesn't feel that far, comparatively speaking. Um, but they are so, I think the Viking world is so cosmopolitan. I think it is so adaptive. I think there's so many different influences coming into the Viking world that it makes it really relatable for us in our really busy current worlds you know where we have so much information all the time but the viking world was a little bit like that as well and um, it was a hugely connected place and people traveled all the time and they traveled away from home and then they went back home um, in a way that maybe that didn't happen in during the 18th 19th 20th century you know emigration was a one-way ticket then but it's not now and it wasn't a one-way ticket in the viking world um, there was, uh, well, unless perhaps, unless you were a slave, then it was one way. Um, and again, that comes into the idea of scale. We just don't know how many people experience that one way ticket. Um, but it's, they're so mobile and so connected. And there's information flowing all the time from Iceland to Greenland, from Greenland to Norway, from Norway to Dublin, from Dublin to uh, Roskilde with the, you know, the, ideal example there is the sea stallion from Glendalock, the reconstructed Viking longship. So it's it's so mobile and connected. And I think that really resonates with us today um, in a very different way to how the, the kind of the 19th century Viking, which is your stereotypical horned helmet Viking um, with a Valkyrie looming over him um, resonated because that image was all about the romance and the Viking as other, as foreign. Um, and the kind of the, the operatic connections to Wagner and to the ring. Um, this is a different resonance today. And I think it is because of that, that mobility. Um, and the Vikings adapt no matter what, no matter where they go, no matter what they encounter, they adapt. And they constantly adapt to the changing environment. And, and that, that, to me, that's what it is. Yeah, no, it, it is so interesting. You're right. I mean, there are those kind of um, perceptions. I, like uh, an area I'm kind of interested in, specifically myself, is, is heritage tourism and how the general public can kind of interact with different sort of uh, in different ways with the past. And, and we talked a little bit about kind of movies and, and, and TV and such. But going to visit the sites, I often find that the Vikings even though they're so well known in Ireland, it's very hard to kind of point to somebody and say, that's a Viking site, go and take a look at that. Because in Dublin, for example, or Waterford or Cork, those places have been built over. You know, we, we have the results from excavation, but we don't actually have, you can't walk down a Viking street so much mm -hmm. anymore. Uh, now there are the exceptions, I suppose, like uh, Woodstown, which was a large long fort found in County Waterford. Uh, but, you know, are, are there other places, I suppose Dunmore Cave might be another, are there other places, like if you were to say to somebody, if somebody asked you, Rebecca, we're going to go and see and experience the Vikings, <laughs> where would you point them to? Um, yeah, it is, it's hard to do that. You know, they're such a pervasive part of our, our I suppose, of our tourist offering as much as anything else, that it is hard to find places um, off the beaten track. I mean, there's, of course, there's Dublinia which is brilliant um but more aimed at children teenagers um maybe not necessarily um at 
and families, maybe not necessarily at, you know, at adults as such. Um, of course, there's the Viking Gallery in the National Museum, um, which is which has loads of the artifacts from Woodkey, but it's a very static display and um, hasn't changed a huge amount. Um, there is Ferry Carrig in Wexford, which is the National Heritage Park, where they have uh, reconstructed two Yes, two Viking houses. Um, and that is, that's a nice place to visit. It's on the river, it's on the shore of the River Slaney um, and the Viking part is right down at the river. So, you know, you walk out the door of the Viking house and you can see the river and you can imagine your Viking longship um, or your Viking trading ship uh, sailing up the river um, a thousand years ago. Um, but there's not, beyond that, there's not a huge amount of places to go and see. Um, what you can do is you can go looking for reenactment events, which are very popular. Um, there'll be several, I think, um, as part of Heritage Week later this year. Um, another uh, somewhere where I'd really recommend is the School of Ar Irish Archaeology, um, who have a little uh, built, Mark has built a little Viking house on a trailer and you can book in and you can excavate the Viking house. Again, though, it's aimed at children. Um, and at the, the kind of the school experience. Um, so it is harder to find sites to visit. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, that, that goes back to what you were saying right at the beginning, that they built out of organic materials. Yeah. You know, which was, so it uh, hasn't survived. It's um, too green for us. That's yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they weren't like the Normans who built 30 great stone castles and no. cathedrals and, yeah. and, as such, you know. Um, and, you know, there are great plans for like places like Woodstown, for example. That, that was yeah. a, a large long fort uh, that, that was found during um, road construction down in Watford. They, it was such an important site, they ended up moving the road. And I was lucky enough to work on the conservation management plan for what mm -hmm. could happen there and, and the, the idea... Uh, generally, it, it's kind of a mad one, but hopefully it comes through. Is that there will be continued the site itself will continue to have research done and maybe some targeted excavations to ask, answer specific questions. But because it's quite a long land plot, I'm hoping mm -hmm. that we might see um, a Viking the the Viking settlement at Woodstown recreated yeah. in the adjacent field, which using only Viking techniques, using yeah. experimental archaeology, which would then answer some of these questions like how long does a Viking house last? Yeah. Do you know, and, and so on. I, I won't be happy until I see Viking <laughs> ships going up and down the river shore. <laughs> That'd have <laughs> been brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you go to Scandinavia, you have these reconstructed Viking villages and they're hugely popular. Um, and they're popular with everyone. Huge tourist attractions for all sorts of reasons. But there's there's enough there to keep everyone interested. Um, and I think we, we are missing that. We are missing that kind of that, that bigger scale experience. Absolutely, because you're right, because the, the reenactors do a terrific job. And, and at Woodstown at Heritage Week, I think it's on the last Sunday of Heritage Week, Dacia Medieval mm -hmm. uh, will be at Woodstown and, and, you know, showing a little bit about what Viking life would have been like there at the time. And, and it's great. It's just getting that bit of tangible experience, isn't it, that we're yeah. missing at the moment. Yeah. I think it'd be terrific to see something on a permanent basis there, yeah. you know. Um, and could you tell us a little bit, I'm really excited to, about the book, could you tell us a little bit about it and where can we get it? <laughs> I will be really excited when you can get the book. Um, <laughs> it will be great. Um, yeah, so this is the my book. Um, hopefully it will be out later this year. Um, 
it's called Exploring uh, Exploring Ireland's Viking Age Towns, Houses and Homes. And what it is, is it's really our first comprehensive look at the archaeology of the houses of Ireland's Viking towns. So it's Dublin, Waterford and Cork. And it's taking this massive data that we have. So there's almost 500 houses um, just from, from the 9th to 12th century levels. And that's a huge amount of data. It's lots and lots of houses. Um, and it's taking that data and using it to tell the story of how the house emerges within these, these, these first urban context, you know, the particular type of house, um, this rectangular house, and how it structures the home life and the household organisation. Um, at the smallest scale, you know, how it structures the individual families who live in them, but also how the house and the architecture builds up to create the whole urban experience and um, how the houses come together to create a street, how the street creates the town um, and how all this data feeds together to tell us this story of urbanisation of Ireland's first towns. Um, and of the, the huge changes that that then unleashes um, on our landscape. That sounds so. terrific. It really does. <laughs> I just can't wait to read it because it, it's sorely needed in, in that sense, just to, to bring all of that information together. I think it's going to be fabulous. Thank you. Uh, and Rebecca, if you could kind of, I'll put you on the spot here, so apologies. <laughs> if you could have our listeners think something a little differently about the Vikings or to keep a picture in their mind about the Vikings for the future, uh, what would it be? That's a very tough question. Um, no, that's okay. Um, what would it be? I don't know. I would say take the your stereotypical Viking so this is your guy with his helmet and his sword and his shield. And he's usually uh, marching through the surf on the side of a beach with the longship in the background. Um, you're very stereotypical Viking. And imagine the complete opposite. The absolute opposite in every way, shape and form that you can imagine. Um, and that's probably more representative of the Viking world, of the entirety of the Viking world. So think of your, your Viking kid, your little five or six year old playing with his boat. Um, or think of your slave um, tilling fields in the kind of the cold fjords of Norway. Or uh, think of your merchant sailing from Dublin to Iceland with a load of um, uh, ring pins, you know, pins that hold your cloak shut when you're um, in the middle of Iceland in the winter and you have to go outside into the minus, minus five, minus 10 temperatures. And you do, you need a pin to keep your cloak closed so that you don't freeze. Um, and think of all those different people and all the practicalities of life, of, like that pin, um, or like the need to repair the house because the roof is starting to fall in. So you have to put up a new post to hold your roof up because you can't, um, you can't get the materials to thatch your house in winter or for whatever reason. Um, so I think move away from that image of the Viking as the, the stereotypical raider and think about all the nuances and connections of daily life. 
Yeah, that that's really good. That's really good. And and uh, no, I, I think it's a really nice point to to end on. So thank you so much <laughs> for your time, Rebecca. And we're going to be putting lots of links in the show notes as well. And as soon as the book is out, I'll add uh, the link to to purchase that as well. Um, but for the moment, I I really recommend everybody if you haven't already check out. Uh, Rebecca's podcast, Viking Age Environments. That's the right name of it, isn't it? Yeah, that is the right <laughs> name, yes. But for the moment, thank you, everyone, and thank you, Rebecca, for joining Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. And I just want to thank Rebecca again for all of her time and insights. It's fascinating to chat about the Vikings with Rebecca. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Rebecca's very kindly shared uh, some links to resources and a fantastic podcast that I highly recommend. And you can find those in the show notes on our website at barterheritage.ie. So this is the first in our new series of Amplify Archaeology podcast, and we've got some really interesting chats lined up. Please do make sure that you're subscribed. And if you'd love to leave us a review, that would be so appreciated as well. You can leave reviews on things like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps us out as it lets those platforms know that we're worth listening to, essentially. Better still, tell a friend or share it on social media as well and introduce more people to Amplify Archaeology. We'd really appreciate your help with that. Last summer, we launched our brand new membership site called Tour. That's where you can find lots of articles on places to visit all around the island. And you can find itineraries for fantastic days out in landscapes like the Boyne Valley or Connemara or the Dingle Peninsula, uh, featuring a load of hidden gems as well as uh, some of our favourite iconic sites. Um, you can also find online courses like an introduction to Irish archaeology or virtual tours with experts like Dr. Damien Shields who gives you a tour of Finnegar Hill where you'll find out about all the latest research that's been carried out there. You've also got access to webinars and talks and tours, lots of different types of content as well. And you can find all of that at tua.ie. That's T-U-A-T-H-A dot I-E. I'd be very grateful if you'd go and take a look. And if you like, join up. You can join up as a monthly member. Uh, and that's ideal if you just want to go for a holiday or something like that here in Ireland. But if you want to kind of really get under the skin of the country, join up with our annual membership and you save a good bit of money that way as well. So I hope you'll consider it. You can visit it again at tua.ie, T-U-A-T-H-A. For now, though, I want to thank you all for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed the new series of Amplified Archaeology. Thanks a million and take care. Bye bye.